Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Samuel Ramini. Sam is an associate fellow at RUSI here in London. A geopolitical analyst and commentator, he's a regular contributor to the Washington Post, El Monitor, Foreign Policy, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I'm pleased to say a regular on our Arab Digest podcast. Sam's book, titled Putin's War on Ukraine, will be published by Hearst and OUP and is due for release in February, so keep an eye out for it. Our conversation today is about how the war in Ukraine is affecting Putin's power plays in the Middle East and North Africa. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here again. Now, can we begin by talking about the export of grain from the Black Sea? The Russians pulled out this week, and then they did a a U-turn and have come back in again. But I'm curious to know what role the Turks have played in keeping the grain moving and perhaps getting Russia to come back in again. So Turkey, as really since the start of this war in Ukraine, wanted to position itself as the main force of de-escalation and the main mediator between East and West, right? And uh, Turkey is the only NATO country that's refrained from sanctioning Russia precisely for that reason. Turkey uh, tried to mediate conflict-wide talks at the start of the conflict. We saw the Istanbul negotiations happen over the course of March, peaking on the 29th and 30th of March. Those negotiations did little in terms of advancing an overall settlement, but they did feature some progress towards humanitarian corridors, which led to the easing of the evacuation situation in Mariupol, as well as eventually the Russians announcing via that forum that they would substantially withdraw forces from Kiev and Chernihiv, which they eventually did in early April. And Turkey is also trying to position itself as a major broker on the issue of grain and food security, as well as potentially down the line on the current impasse that we're seeing with the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. So Turkey's uh, troubleshooting role in this crisis is hardly surprising. And, uh, we saw as soon as the Russians pulled out of the Black Sea grain export deal uh, this time around, the Turks uh, reassured the international community that Russia had just suspended uh, its uh, involvement and not completely scrapped the deal. So it was still potentially able to renew the deal by November 19th as planned. Turkey had shuttled diplomacy with uh, various different actors, including brokering a talk between Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defense minister, and their own defense minister, Hulusi Akar and then was ultimately able to achieve a breakthrough. And Erdogan's statement after the breakthrough was quite interesting because he noted that this grain deal will allow for more exports to African countries, particularly countries like Somalia, Djibouti, Sudan. And that actually was a repetition of one of Russia's major propaganda tropes, which is that this grain deal only supplied 3 to 4% of the grain to countries that are the most in need, and was mostly Ukraine re-exporting grain to the West. Of course, when Ukraine was re-exporting grain to the United States or to even to Turkey itself, that grain was often being transferred afterward to countries in Africa, countries in the Middle East. But Erdogan lent uh, a degree of credibility to one of uh, uh, Russia's disinformation narratives to kind of uh, give Russia a nod and help Russia along over here. So Erdogan played an important role in facilitating a brokering of this uh, revived deal. But at a little bit of a reputational cost, I think, towards his image in the West. That being said, it's still a long time between now and November 19th, and there's still a lot of issues that can be resolved or cannot be resolved over the course of that time. Russia has uh, repeatedly insisted 
the deal does not protect its uh, fertilizer and food interests. It's a huge Ukraine of mining ports and preventing uh, the uh, access of free flow of grain. And there's so many conspiracies about the grain deal domestically. From, from the United States uh, seizing uh, a Ukrainian grain in exchange for lend and and wheat to Ukraine uh, effectively trying to starve its own people because they're they're Nazis and also uh, a variety of conspiracies about you know how the green agenda and not anything that Russia is doing is actually causing this crisis. So given the uh, di- disinformation ecosystem at home as well as uh, Russia's desire to pin the blame on this on Ukraine, I think that Turkey will have to play another troubleshooting role again maybe in the next few weeks. So I don't think that we've seen the last of Russia's uh, uh, obstructionism here. And finally, even if Russia does renew the deal, there's still so many other ways in which they can disrupt uh, grain exports. I mean, they may not have the naval capability to carry out a full-fledged blockade of Ukrainian ports, but they can target ports with strikes, like they did the day after the deal was signed the first time. They struck Odessa. They can target uh, granaries. We just saw them do that in Mikhailiv. They can uh, attack uh, factories with sunflower oil. And they can even, as part of their attacks on power stations and civilian infrastructure, bomb the railways and strike the railways with missiles that uh, transport grain. Mm-hmm. And Turkey, in that situation, if Russia extends the deal but violates it in spirit, may have a lot of difficulty really being a substantial troubleshooting role and reviving this mediation role. So this mm-hmm. is a victory for Turkey, but a temporary one, and one that's got a lot of unpredictable fallout going forward. Yeah, and I suppose it speaks too to the uh, the relationship between Erdogan and Putin. I mean, how tight is that relationship? Well, that relationship is uh, tightening uh, in some ways and also weakening in some ways as a result of the Ukraine war. So how is it tightened? It's tightened because Turkey has maintained a resolute uh, stance on not imposing sanctions against Russia. And it's even uh, continued to explore uh, new economic projects or developing projects that were already in existence like the uh, Akhiyu nuclear plant, which will now be signed on the 100th anniversary of uh, Turkish statehood, and Putin announced that. So that's a big uh, uh, step forward. We also have seen uh, Turkey act as a potential transshipment point for Russian oil and other sanctioned goods entering to Europe. So how far they'll be able to do that depends on, obviously, American secondary sanctions. We've seen Turkey manage to maintain business-as-usual relationships with uh, Russia in Syria, avoiding a major offensive in the north that would have strained relations with Russia while maintaining the patrols in Idlib. So that's a significant uh, compartmentalization success. And we've seen that uh, Turkish officials, in some ways, play lip service to some Russian narratives to how the Western actions may have uh, contributed to this Ukraine war being outbroken, as well as Turkey continuing to obstruct the NATO membership of Finland and Sweden, though that issue is likely to be resolved. So on all those counts, for those reasons, I think that Turkey and Russia have had a very uh, good relationship that's strengthened because of this war. Where the relationship has gotten weaker, obviously, I think, is in the long-term defense exports. I think it's very difficult for Turkey to really purchase more military equipment from Russia beyond exercising the current uh, terms of their S-400 deal. And even that deal is uh, going to be potentially tested by secondary sanctions. Turkey has also supplied drones to uh, Ukraine during this time period. And there's also concerns that Turkey is trying to open up a second front in the South Caucasus by enabling... uh, Azerbaijan's ambitions to uh, to expel Armenia from remaining areas of Karabakh, and the ongoing uh, volatility in the South Caucasus is an area of tension. So while I think that uh, the Russia-Turkey relationship has obviously made significant strides, 
Yeah, because of this war, there's still areas where it could expose familiar weaknesses going forward. Now, I want to turn to Israel and just for the moment, setting aside the results of Tuesday's election. Can you explain to our listeners the way the Israelis are handling the war? Uh, President Zelensky is very clear they're simply buckling to the Russians. Is that how you see it, Sam? Well, I think the Israeli policy is quite complicated towards this war. So, and it's also heavily impacted by not just national security concerns, but also domestic politics. So, uh, for the early stages of the war, we saw substantial differences in approaches towards the, uh, the, the conflict. We've seen Benjamin Netanyahu basically remain effectively silent about uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine and urge the uh, Israeli policy community to focus on the bigger threat at hand, Iran. We saw Naftali Bennett largely uh, toe a similar line to Netanyahu, basically try to engage with Russia, even try to uh, temporarily offer himself as a mediator, like what Tur- I said was Turkey was doing. Israel was trying to do something similar. But we've also seen Yair Lapid uh, be periodically uh, more critical of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, and even without explicitly yet labeling responsibility to Russia on certain Russian war crimes like the Bucha massacre. So we've seen uh, major differences in how the key figures in Israeli politics have uh, responded, at least in tone. And there's at least two camps right now with regards to ha- how to handle the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. The Netanyahu camp, which believes that engagement with Russia is important, that Ukraine is not our fight, and that also engaging with Russia will help secure Russian interests in Syria. And Lapid, who accepts some of that, but is willing to push the boundaries and at least succeed to Western pressure as much as possible. So that's the uh, domestic layout that we've seen over here. And as a result, we've seen a policy that's much like Turkey's policy, a policy where Israel zigzags along all sides. It uh, votes to condemn the uh, Russian aggression in the United Nations, but it won't impose sanctions on Russia. And uh, Russian businesses are carrying out uh, business-as-usual relationships, though with some concerns about uh, heavy investment. Uh, we're seeing the uh, Israeli uh, policy towards arming Ukraine take a similar way. I mean, the Israelis will not rule out providing uh, some uh, air defense uh, down the line, uh, though not the most sophisticated Iron Dome systems. That's an absolute no. Some humanitarian assistance has been provided. They've resettled large numbers of refugees, particularly those of Jewish heritage, but also those of Russian and Ukrainian heritage, to be fair. And uh, the Israelis have... Uh, Provide helmets and some other small, smaller scale like uh, military equipment, but no offensive weaponry. And even the uh, threat of Iranian uh, ballistic missiles and drones has not moved the needle. Mm-hmm. So it's a very restrained approach where Russia, Israel does not want to completely divorce itself from the collective West, but also certainly wants to appease Russia. And Zelensky is frustrated by that because Zelensky believes that, you know, the denazification rhetoric and how offensive that should be to the Jewish people in Israel should have led to the Israelis taking a firmer stance, particularly after Lavrov's comments, which claimed that Hitler was Jewish and uh, uh, were of such a heinous nature and so badly received by so much of the Jewish community. That was a bitter pill for Zelensky to swallow. And uh, Ukraine is uh, quite disappointed, though it does have one silver lining. I think that there's a growth of Ukrainian and Israeli intelligence cooperation going forward. Andrew Yermak, one of Zelensky's key advisors, has been working on that for months now. And now with the Iranian drone and missile threat, and the fact that Ukraine is also tracking that, we might see closer ties with these Ukrainian agencies and Mossad. That could lead to more cooperation in the security sphere. So mm-hmm. the picture's not all bad, but Israel is zigzagging back and forth. There's many domestic divisions, particularly between the Lapid and Netanyahu camp, 
not to mention the Russian diaspora community, which is largely consisting of Soviet Jews who left the Soviet Union, who are appalled by the war, new migrants who have left uh, Russia who are appalled by the war, but also a small vocal minority who are willing to embrace Russian propaganda narratives, including the narrative that Ukraine is an anti-Semitic country and that they uh, back Stefan Bandera and other Nazis and other things. So the, uh, the diaspora community is also playing a part in creating these polarizations too. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Of course, Zelensky himself being Jewish. But uh, I, I'm just wondering, Sam, now Netanyahu is back in the saddle. Would you expect a shift in the, which way would the zig or the zag go with Netanyahu back in the, back in the game? Well, not necessarily that much of a shift. The uh, that the Israelis are going to continue doing what they already have been doing. The uh, annexation of Crimea was, uh, and Israel was a lot more cautious about that than the full-scale war in Ukraine. When Netanyahu was prime minister in 2017, the Israelis and the Ukrainians were trying to get closer ties, and the Israelis were gradually starting to acknowledge the Crimea annexation was a major violation of international law, but without really condemning Russia very strongly, but making the step towards supporting Ukrainian sovereignty, at the very least. So this uh, policy that we're seeing from Israel is a continuity for the Netanyahu era, and I think that that will largely continue. But Netanyahu will probably push Benny Gantz even further and other figures in the Israeli security establishment away from donating any kind of air defense equipment or any kind of military technology of substance towards Ukraine. So that Mm -hmm. narrow window for Israel eventually reconsidering on the Ukraine issue will probably fade away. But the rhetoric and the remainder of the policy will largely stay the same. Now, you you touched on Iran. The Israeli government's been consistently vociferous in opposing the JCPOA, even as the Russians are tightening ties with Iran, including now using Iranian uh, drones against the Ukrainians. Should the JCPOA wither and die, how will that play for the Russians in the Middle East? Well, the JCPOA is in uh, a major period of crisis right now because uh, Obviously, uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, major tenets of it that are just not being fulfilled. Iran is continuing to enrich uranium. The Americans in the West are unwilling to remove some of the most problematic sanctions on Iran, at least from Tehran's point of view, including the U.S. designation of the IRGC as a terrorist group, and uh, the imposition of more sanctions that is likely to follow in the European Union and the United States for Iran's military support for Russia is only going to create an atmosphere around the JCPOA that makes negotiations extremely difficult. Also, the JCPOA is one of the rare formats these days where Russian and Western diplomats have had to work side by side, even in spite of this war. And uh, as the uh, Russians threatened uh, the West with their nuclear brinkmanship in the next territory in Ukraine, and they uh, continue to rule out any kind of diplomatic off-ramp or diplomatic solution, or even sabotage any attempts that are offered to them in the Ukrainian theater, I think that it's going to be harder and harder for the West and Russia to work together on coming to a meaningful understanding. So I think the JCPOA is on the very least on ice for the long-term future and is quite possibly on the verge to complete uh, destruction. So I'm very negative about where the JCPOA is going. Certainly the situation is a lot worse than it was when the European Union was trying to push forward its own set of terms several months ago, or certainly where it was when there were uh, misunderstandings about uh, sanctions relief and enrichment that were being debated last fall. So the situation has gotten a lot worse from that point of view. And the uh, impact on Russia, should uh, it fail? I think that uh, Russia obviously viewed the uh, JCPOA as, this, uh, as, as an important diplomatic achievement for it, much like the European Union did, actually. 
the Russians view the fact that even after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, they were able to play an indispensable role in bringing Iran to the table, and the West needed Russia. So it was a, a place where the Russians were toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with the West as a great power. The Russians are seen as indispensable. The Russians are viewed as constructive and needed by the West. And that was important for them. So I think that that is uh, that element, and the fact that they cannot have these negotiations where Russia still is showing itself to be needed at a time when the West is trying to isolate it, from a propaganda perspective, from a great power status projection perspective, is going to be a wound to Putin's pride to some degree, even if the Russians have brought the situation upon themselves. The removal of the GCPOA also would have made some uh, trading and commercial practices easier because Russia was able to allegedly secure a complete exemption from any of the new sanctions that have been imposed on it and be able to trade like the way they would have done after 2015. So that would have been an advantage. A stronger Iranian economy is a stronger trade partner for Russia. And mm -hmm. also, Iran was not an immediate competitor to Russia for the supply of uh, oil to Europe because it would take years for the pipeline infrastructure to really be able to supply oil in the kind of quantities that would require divestment for the Russians. They would still have to be looking towards Algeria, Qatar, and the other Gulf monarchies to break the impasse. So the, there was no risk of Iran being an economic competitor. So it, Russia had a lot to gain, I think, by the restoration of the JCPOA. Now I think there will be more cooperation between Russia and Iran in the sphere of sanctions busting and sanctions relief. We're already seeing closer interactions between their respective central banks and financial institutions against uh, so-called money laundering and terrorism financing. We're seeing Iranian and Russian business delegations shuttle back and forth between Moscow and Tehran on a regular basis, trying to see how sanctions can be uh, uh, turned around. When Russia is smuggling grain from Ukraine, like from Kurzon, Zaporizhia, via Crimea, Sebastopol, to the Middle East and Africa, it's using the kind of ship-to-ship -ship techniques that Iran has used to sanction uh, contraband oil in the past. So we've seen cooperation on the sanctions sphere there. And with the arms embargo being lifted by the United Nations, the Iranians are going to be able to continue to supply uh, drones and missiles to the Russians as well, in the hopes that the Russians may even supply them with Su-35 fighter jets down the line. So there's some opportunities, obviously, but I think that a more uh, expansive Russian-Iranian partnership would have resulted from the GCPA being restored, and Russia's status would have been better. So I think the Russians would have looked to a situation where the GCPOA was alive and kicking, rather than one where it's about to die. Mm. Now, Putin's reputation was flying pretty high in the Middle East. Uh, it's rather fallen to ground since the Ukraine war. How damaged do you think he is? And do Middle East leaders now view him differently from the way they looked at him eight months ago? Well, I think the first thing that was shattered was the uh, strength of the Russian military, right? Because so much of Russia's respect in the Middle East, even from uh, countries that opposed Bashar al-Assad, even from countries like Saudi Arabia, it was the fact that Russia was able to go into Syria defend an ally in crisis, and change the outcome of a war with the use of air power and local proxies very effectively. Albeit at an immense uh, human cost, but so was Saudi Arabia doing that in Yemen. It's something that was seen to be highly respected. It was seen as the most transformative intervention by an external power in the Middle East since the United States uh, in 1991 in the Gulf War, and a stark contrast to the uh, travails that the Americans had in Iraq after 2003. So the, the abject failure of of the Russian military to achieve its objectives in Ukraine, the uh, proven failure of Russia's uh, battlefield techniques, command structure, means um, uh, of hybrid war from cyber attacks, the management of local proxies, to also the vulnerability of the Russian Black Sea Fleet and Navy, and the struggles of Russian uh, artillery against uh, HIMARS systems and even prior generation NATO class systems. 
will erode the appeal of Russian military technology and damage Russia's reputation as a security partner and as an indispensable pole in the region. So Russia is still a pole of the multipolar order, but it's not necessarily a great power pole that it had before that. So that's one important thing to keep in mind. That being said, even though the Russians have struggled in Ukraine, their partnerships with the Middle East have not completely atrophied. We've seen Saudi Arabia and Russia work behind the scenes to strike a deal at OPEC+. Plus. Saudi Arabia negotiated a hostage release deal, which was controversial, that led to Viktor Medvedchuk, their uh, proxy and surrogate in Ukraine, being uh, freed for Azov battalion fighters. We've seen uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis in general continue to view Russia as a uh, pole in the system, are always talking about how they want peace in Ukraine. That's why they're talking to them, but they're still engaging with Russia as an important pole. We're seeing Egypt uh, play a similar role, using its role as being at the crossroads of the African Union, the Arab League, to maintain normalized relations and projects like the Rosatom Aldaba nuclear reactor. We haven't seen a mass evacuation of Russian energy interests in Iraqi Kurdistan, in spite of fears of sanctions. So while countries aren't necessarily rushing to engage with uh, Russia with new projects, they aren't abandoning the projects that they've signed with them either. And that's important to keep in mind. And uh, as Russia plays the long game, they will uh, most likely be able to maintain, at least at a superficial level, many of the partnerships in, in the Middle East that they had before the war. And that's uh, as something that's quite significant. One X factor is Syria. As the Russians uh, mobilize forces, they may not necessarily need to move manpower and personnel out of Syria, but they may need to move uh, other military equipment, like S-300 air defense systems like we've already seen. Also, the movement of some fighter jets and other infrastructure. And we've seen uh, airstrikes in Syria decline to a multi-year low, and we've seen that also lead to fewer civilian casualties. So it's uh, a curse for Russia's military power, but a blessing for the Syrian civilians who are living there. And if Russia is meaningfully retrenched from Syria in a substantial way, which I don't see them doing right now, but they could do if their equipment becomes short inside uh, Ukraine, and Iran gains a, a discernible advantage, that could upend Russia's partnerships with Israel, their informal security understanding, as well as their partnerships with Turkey in the north, about the northern issue in Idlib. So that is a, an even bigger X factor, I think, right now than what we're seeing with regards to the conduct of the war in Ukraine. Will Russia be able to maintain its low-grade but still very prominent role in the Syrian conflict? Mm. And a very important role, too, as, as you've said. But I want to ask you now, Sam, about Libya and the game the Russians are playing there. I mean, are they still backing Haftar or are they casting around for other players? Well, Russia's strategy in Libya has always been Haftar first, but balancing all the other players after. And there's no difference now. The Russians tried to make a major rapprochement with Fadi Bashaga, the Libyan prime minister, recognizing him as the legitimate authority, even when the rest of the UNSC was willing to acknowledge him as a split authority with uh, the government of national unity. But, and uh, that was quite significant because Bashaga was previously condemned by Yevgeny Prigozhin, one of Russia's closest, one of Putin's closest allies, Haftar's main backer by the Wagner Group, as a terrorist and as an accomplice in stooge for Turkish interests. Prigozhin went from calling him that to praising his leadership and uh, and showing him as a potential figure who could unite Libyans. So the Russians made a big play to strengthen their relationship with Bashaga and with results that can only be described as mixed. The Libyan uh, people were angered greatly by Russia's blockade of Ukrainian grain. Libya was a top 10 purchaser of Ukrainian grain before the war, and they now had to find more expensive supplies from Australia, Argentina, you name it. And they were very upset by that. 
Bashaga, under pressure from uh, other figures like Nigel Mangush, uh, condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So uh, the relationship is not really uh, where the Russians would like to see it. So increasingly, that means the Russians have to go back to their default, which is to maintain ties with all sides, but go back to their Haftar-centric strategy. The Libyan National Army and Haftar want no part in the Ukraine war, so there were some rumors that the Russians are trying to recruit foreign fighters in Ukraine, and the LNA shot that down. But the Russian water group uh, maintains control over uh, crucial bases in Libya, as well as crucial oil ports and assets to prevent Libya from exporting uh, gas at the maximum quantity to Europe right now. The uh, water group is reportedly so in control of some bases in Tobruk that it actually allows what, what LNA fighters to enter and exit, so they still have that kind of control. And there's still between 1,200 and 2,000 personnel uh, with no sign of a drawdown, even when their manpower shortages became quite acute in the summer before the uh, partial mobilization and draft. So the Russians, I think, are here to stay in Libya, most likely relying on Haftar to blockade oil ports and create instability, and their outreach to Bashaga, which may have uh, led to Bashaga and Haftar coming together or sidelining at least some of their most anti-systemic uh, support for Haftar, has been something of a disappointment. Mm. Well, now you've mentioned uh, Jenny Prigozhin and, and the Wagner Group, and as you said, Prigozhin, friend and confidant of Vladimir Putin. And the Prigozhin, of course, runs the Wagner Group, and he has deep interests in African mining ventures. Uh, we did a story last week uh, about Sudan and the and the very lucrative gold trade, much of it smuggled uh, with Dubai and then heading on to Moscow. Uh, how powerful is Prigozhin, and how important is he to Putin? Well, Prigozhin, uh, in his early years, was something of a fixture, like a fixer for Putin behind the shadows. He was an associate of Putin from Putin's days in St. Petersburg, New Island Restaurant, which was his uh, flagship of his catering company, Concord, was uh, frequented by Putin. Putin used him as a chef uh, in his meetings with George W. Bush, Jacques Chirac, Yudhiro Koizumi, back during the early 2000s. And then entrusted him with some of Russia's most sensitive but also deniable operations, whether it be the election interference in the United States in 2016 and similar attempts at election interference in European democracies, uh, or whether it be the water group's deniable counterinsurgency and military missions in Libya, uh, Mozambique, and uh, Mali. Like I say, deniable because they obviously they're there and obviously they're backing local stakeholders, but the Russian state specifically does not attest uh, value to them or take credit for the successes officially or take responsibility for the failures and atrocities that happened there. So while he was a pretty convenient fixture, fixer behind the shadows, it's important to note that as recently as November of last year, so a year ago, he had not done a single interview with an international media outlet. Over the past year, and particularly over the past several months, his his profile within Russia and internationally has drastically expanded. Prigozhin has positioned himself as something of a hardline uh, critic of the war effort uh, as run by Sergei Shoigu, aligning with figures like Ramzan Kadyrov in Chechnya and some hardliners within the Duma, like uh, Andrei Gorulyov and some others. And uh, he is called in support of mobilization. He supported some of the nuclear brinkmanship and threats that we've seen. And he has uh, basically fashioned the water group into being what is seen as the most professional and effective uh, ground force unit of the Russian army. His actual results have been uh, somewhat underwhelming. The water group was important in achieving victories in Luhansk. 
but they've uh, struggled to achieve uh, a breakthrough in the small town of Bakhmut and Donetsk, months of bombarding the city and terrorizing its civilians. So Prigozhin's uh, progress has been mixed on the battlefield, but his image has certainly expanded. He now admits he's the head of the Wagner Group, which he never did before. And he, the Wagner Group is playing an active role in trying to present itself as a patriotic body that's recruiting Russians. Prigozhin's become a hero of Russia. And Prigozhin was a key uh, figure who engineered the appointment of General Armageddon, General Sergei Surovikin, as the new general. And he praised him for his uh, killing of protesters in 1991, where Prigozhin sarcastically admits, I was actually a liberal then, but I like what he did 30 years later in hindsight. So Prigozhin has now played a very important and now public role, which is very different. And uh, elsewhere in the Middle East, he's playing an important uh, role for Russia's interests as well, particularly in Libya, as I mentioned before, smuggling, as you said, of gold coming from Sudan via Dubai, but also in Syria. And if the uh, Russian uh, regular forces start pulling out from Syria in a significant way, the Wagner Group has a lot of informal training and uh, security agreements with Bashar al-Assad, which could see them playing a bigger role there as well, maybe going forward. And Russia outsourcing more and more of its uh, security policy in the global south, particularly in the Middle East and Africa, towards Wagner. Wagner is looking towards the Sahel in West Africa as the, its biggest new frontier, in particular Burkina Faso, though they may have suffered a blow this week because the new coup leader who was feted by the Russians, Ibrahim Traore, is now saying that he's not going to accept Russian private military contractors in the near future. Mm. Do you think that he potentially is a threat to Putin? Well, that's an open question. I think he's certainly a threat to Sergei Shoigu. He's trying to position himself as a shadow defense minister. And much depends on which side of the line does Putin uh, follow. Up until the summer, Putin was avoiding mobilization. He was avoiding the annexation of territory. He was trying to recruit as many Russians as possible within a volunteer system and impose clear limits on the extent to uh, which the war is uh, you know, was going. And that was putting Russia in the position in which they would inevitably suffer a defeat. They had already lost Kharkiv in record time in less than a week. They lost more than 1,000 kilometers of territory. They were losing in Kurzon with isolated forces. And it was only a matter of time before the Russian defensive lines in Donetsk, Luhansk, and maybe even down the line Crimea would have faded. If Putin had continued along that trajectory, there's no doubt that Prigozhin and some of the hardliners would have posed a much bigger threat to him. But Prigozhin's latest moves and Putin's uh, uh, latest moves have aligned together. And Putin, I think, has foresawed the risk of Prigozhin posing a threat to him for the foreseeable future. Because of his willingness to go all in with mobilization, he hasn't fired Shoigu and Gerasimov yet, but he's fired almost every other member of the major military districts inside Russia. So, And he's appointed uh, Surovikin and some other Prigozhin favorites as military figures. So Putin may be uh, alive for now and doesn't necessarily pose an imminent threat from Prigozhin, but Prigozhin is playing a more and more influential role in shaping his agenda. And the question is, is Prigozhin rallying a coalition behind the scenes that could hold Putin hostage to him and reverse the power dynamic in that relationship? Prigozhin's wealth and Prigozhin's influence up until now has not come from owning any kind of assets. He's not an oligarch in the traditional sense. He doesn't own an oil company or own an aluminum company or own some kind of uh, assets that would give him wealth and status aside from his relationship with Putin. His billionaire status is entirely tied to his usefulness to Putin. And if Shoigu or another leader had taken over from Putin in the past, he could have been sidelined, he could have even been arrested, and he could have been uh, uh, blamed for a lot of the crimes and atrocities and military failures that he oversaw. Now the power dynamic has changed, and the question is less, will Prigozhin become marginal 
and oppose Putin Russia, but rather will Prigozhin hold Putin hostage to his agenda? And we have to see what happens going forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sam, yeah, watch this space. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Samuel Ramini, an associate fellow at RUSI here in London. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched, and in that time, the podcasts have been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, or other platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest Daily Newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Sam. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you're a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask for your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.